what's what's the uh is that an optic on something on your let's see it'd be on your right or is that a blade this? yeah it's a lamp that's, that's a lamp. lamp. <laughs> that's, can you talk <laughs> As I said, you're very small on my screen. Up there. I, thought uh, no, looked, I thought that looked like a, like a really old optic, like a really long optic or something. Meet the Pressers with Matt Mallory and Clint Necro. Brought to you by Public Safety and Education and the Trigger Pressers Union. And now, your hosts. Welcome to Meet the Pressers. I'm Matt Mallory, and this is Clint Macro over here, looking studly as ever. And we talk to other, other pressers, other trigger pressers, about firearms, self-defense, product reviews, uh, occasionally blow things up different things like that, and also politics and political activism. So today's show is very special. Uh, we've been doing lots of political activism over the last year because, well, it's kind of the world we live in right now. But today we're going to talk just about guns. And we have Ian McCollum from Forgotten Weapons. This episode of Meet the Pressers is made possible with the generous support of Car Firearms Group, The Law of Self-Defense, Nikon Sport Optics, Mantis X, Shooter Technology Group, Henry Repeating Arms, Saber Red, ASP, The Safer Faster Defense Responder 2.0, Lee Armory, Next Level Training, and our Patreon members. Thank you. Ian, I just want to say thank you for being on the show. I have to admit that I learned about you very later in life. Actually, it was uh, last fall, I was watching on Amazon Prime, and I started seeing some of your one-hour shows and one-and-a-half-hour shows, and I've been addicted, man. My son and I actually have watched just about everything that's on Amazon Prime, and I can't wait for you to start talking on our show here today. Welcome. Well, I'm partially I'm flattered, but then again, you also uh, made me sound really old because you got to this <laughs> late in life. I haven't been doing it that long. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, we uh, started um, compiling some of the the content onto Amazon Prime, which was uh, I partnered up with a, a guy to do that, um, and it seemed like a really cool idea at the time. And yeah, it's actually uh, it's done very well, and it's attracted a lot more people uh, to the channel, which is cool. Like yourself, how did you start out? Uh, you know, you're well. It, it may just be for clean living, but you don't seem like you're a terribly old individual, and you are definitely one of the foremost experts of of firearms history and, and vintage and lineage. Where, how did you start getting into this? Well, to the extent it's true, it's only true to that, that I do it online. Um, because what got me into it and what has made it possible for me is by listening to people who know a lot more than I do, reading uh, the writings of people who know a lot more than I do. Um, I spent many years walking around with my mouth closed and my ears open, hanging around some, some really experienced advanced collectors. Uh, and that's what got me interested in it and got got me started at it. Um, it the, the website, I originally started a just a plain website. I don't know that people really do that anymore, but uh, it was intended to archive documents and photographs and basically information about unusual and rare um, and influential or, or uninfluential firearms. And that slowly expanded into video content because video is just a much easier medium to explain 
things like long recoil actions and such. Uh, and then it, it has kind of since morphed into 100% video. I like to get back a little bit into some of the archival stuff, but that's an ongoing thing. Actually, that's an ongoing thing for 2020. Uh, nice. But yeah, it turned into a daily video post on YouTube, which has been a lot of fun and opened a lot of doors and been very rewarding. Well, excellent. You brought a few different firearms with you today. Uh, yes. Matt had told me that when, when he first approached you about doing the show, you were like, let's talk about a specific a specific set of guns or a specific topic. What, what would you like to talk about today on our show? Yeah, well, I thought it'd be interesting to... Uh, partially for me to pick your guys' brains about basically concealed carry pistols of a hundred years ago. Hmm. Uh, or, you know, today people, people poo poo the idea of 32s and 380s and solid steel concealable compact guns, but that's what was around. And, you know, boy, about 120 years ago now, there really was a revolution in, in, but basically personal concealable firepower. Uh, you went from having, you know, people carrying stuff like this, yep. or maybe yep. smaller than this, it's a single 455 or 450 caliber pocket revolver, to all of a sudden this semi-automatic thing happens. Um, you know, smokeless powder is invented, and within about 15 years, we have the first really feasible, uh, very practical, and very popular civilian carry pistols. Um, John Browning designed this guy in 1899. Uh, this is the pistol that the 32 ACP cartridge was invented with. Like he designed the pistol and the cartridge that went in it. And it, you know, it's a cartridge that's still with us today. And within 10 years, um, FN had made what half a million Browning pistols. I mean, this thing was a, a, a huge revolution in what people were able to carry and what people decided that they would carry and would spawn a bunch of other um, contemporaries. So the three that I have in particular that I think stand out here are the three like 1910s to 1920s um, American semi-auto concealable pistols. And they are the Savage. There are a couple different models of this. There's the 1907. This is a 1915, which is the hammerless model with a grip safety. And then there's the 1917 that has this kind of art deco looking grip that's pretty cool. Uh, made them in 32 and 380. There's the Remington Model 51, uh, not to be confused with the disastrous remake of the Remington 51. Should also I get that? 32. <laughs> I got one in the safe. <laughs> uh, I bought one too. I haven't actually taken it out and fired it yet. Um, I'll tell you what, this is a lot nicer than the new one. Uh, again, 32 and 380. And then. The uh, Browning's follow-up to the 1900, the 1903. Uh, so this is Colt's 1903. FN also made a 1903, but FN marketing it in Europe made it more of as a service pistol, where Colt made it as a concealed carry pistol, um, or in this case, a police pistol. So this is this is actually a Shanghai Police Department example, which is cool, but that's sort of a separate topic. So you know during the from 1900 to 1920, you have this big proliferation of, in, in some ways, it's comparable to what we see today with service pistols. You've got Glocks, you've got FNs, you've got Smith & Wesson, you've got Ruger, you've got everybody under the sun making guns that are relatively similar in terms of profile, capacity, capability. Um, today, they're relatively similar in mechanical function where 
Like early on, the Savage, the Remington, and the Colt all have distinctively different operating systems because all that stuff was still under patent at that point. Um, but I think they're a really cool batch of pistols. And frankly, I think someone carrying them today wouldn't be particularly underarmed. You know, we see a lot of people carrying, or we see a lot of people buying uh, small caliber subcompact pistols, 380s uh, in particular. You got is it um, the XD EZ 380 uh, or Springfield EZ 380? Is that what it's? I think uh, that's Smith and Wesson. Smith and Wesson. Smith and Wesson. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I have my backup gun, my bug, my bug, bug gun, or my bug backup gun is a Keltec P3AT. So it's a little 380. Yeah. Um, but it's backup for, you know, if the other one runs out of ammo or something. But um, yeah, I mean, Clint and I, we were talking earlier about. 40, 45, and nine, and how technology's changed over the years where it's really hard to see the wound channel. And I, we've got a student with my company that is a doctor at a local hospital. And he said, the only thing he cares about is how many holes and where are they located. So in some sense, that is a, you know, it's a, it's a valid thought process. If the gun works, that's probably the, and you know how to work the gun, that's probably the most important thing. Yeah, and with right. with the with the bonded jacketed hollow point technology that's out now, you know, the 380 is very viable. And I could see even using some smaller calibers like like 22 Magnum or, you know, 32. If you had the right type of ammunition, uh, you know, that's that's definitely a viable choice. You know, and there's always the old the old saying of, well, the perfect gun to have is is the one you have when you need it. Right. So, hmm. uh, you know, uh, Michael Martin, uh, who's uh, an instructor, he, he talks about how. Uh, most criminals want to leave with the same amount of holes they have on them. And they're probably not going to ask you if that's a 22 or a 32 or a 380 uh, before they uh, try to attack you. So uh, perhaps, you know, we, we do know when law abiding citizens produce firearms quite often, the bad guy goes away. So having anything is better than having nothing in my opinion. For sure. It's interesting. Uh, you know what Savage's uh, marketing slogan was? Back in the teens when they were selling these? No, no, I don't. 10 shots quick. Double stack, 10 round magazine <laughs> in either 380 or 32. I mean, that's okay. That's small compared to a, you know, Glock 19. But for what is essentially relatively compact pistol, especially stuff of this era tends to be relatively thin. Um, the Remington in particular is a very skinny pistol um, that conceals really fairly nicely and it's not a trivial amount of, of firepower in it yeah, yeah 10 shots that would still be non-compliant in new york <laughs> well not not for me i got a shiny thing but oh you um, got the light the flashy badge and lights that's right but most uh for most civilians yes it would it would be illegal to put more than seven rounds in your 10 round magazine in new york state that's a shame. wow so in fact even my remington's not kosher because that's the rest of these are basically eight-round mags. Yep. So you can put seven in that eight-round mag. You just can't put eight. You put eight in there, that's a misdemeanor. That's not good. I'll, yeah. I'll just stay in Arizona. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Why does everybody say that? I need help behind <laughs> enemy lines. Hi, I'm Tom Gibbons with Rangemaster, and this is Meet the Pressers with Matt Mallory and Clint Macro. Meet the Pressers. The British Bulldog. Um, I don't. I have more I'm more interest in in the semi-autos than in revolvers, but mm -hmm. I picked this one up in particular because, um, as best as you can figure, because Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was not a gun guy, this is the gun that Sherlock Holmes carried. 
Uh, hmm. There are a couple incidents in the Sherlock Holmes stories where he carries a gun. Uh, Watson often does. Holmes occasionally does. And when he does, it's a little two-inch barreled 450 caliber Webley. And that's what this is. That's really cool history. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's like a 200-grain bullet, black powder charge, and it's moving at like 50 feet per second. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's actually like... Yeah. It's like the Matrix, but not really. I think it's 600, although it may be less than that out of a two-inch barrel. Wow. Uh, it's yeah. a it's a pretty pretty slow cartridge, but I don't want to get shot by that. Yeah, I, absolutely. I would agree 100% with that statement. Kind of wondering if you could dodge that. I don't know. <laughs> At that speed, right? So awesome. the Savage, like what is the grip angle on the Savage? I mean, it's like almost um, looks 90 degrees. It's like... Almost. And it that's partly distorted by the fact that it has a grip safety in it. Right. Okay. Uh, that sticks out a fair bit. Um, Savage actually had two different designs. So when in 1917, they changed to something where the, the grip is almost triangular. Um, it expands out the front and the back. Um, to me, I find this a little bit square to shoot, but that's all just a matter of, of taste and, and preference and habit. Um, it's not the hammerless version of this is kind of cool because it doesn't bite you like, uh, like the hammered ones sometimes do. Mm-hmm. So, um, these guys have a rotating barrel to lock. Um, it's sort of a hesitation system. It's not really sort of fully locked, uh, but it does delay opening of the gun. Um, and they did that again because these were early enough that every all the, the real systems, all the, the systems were under patent protection. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it took years before that legally expired. So if you wanted to come up with a new... If you wanted to market a new gun, you had to come up with a novel way to operate it. Um, Browning, basically Browning got Browning got the jump on the market with this guy, which is uh, simple blowback. Um, this is like the gun that invented the slide as well as the 32 ACP uh, and stuck around for a very long time. I, I would still feel confident carrying this. Like this will get the job done uh, if you will, I think. And it's a mechanically reliable system. Yeah. Once again, it, I mean, that's the, that's the aspect of it. If it's a reliable firearm, I'll use like 1911 as an example. And, and I'm sure Clint, you've had this in your classes too, that sometimes depending on the, the 1911, the, the workmanship's a little loose and sometimes you can have malfunctions and stoppages and stuff with it. But uh, you know, it's, it's been around forever. You know, it's, it's, I'm more confident in the 1903 than the 1911. <laughs> Very interesting. Yeah. I'll look at students. I'll look at students and I'll be like, so any, what does 1911 signify? Uh, production year? I'm like, yeah. Anybody around back then? No, no, nobody, nobody. <laughs> and I, say, I like 70 Chevelles, but I also like air conditioning and not a big fan of eight tracks. So I'll own one, but I don't know if I'd carry one, but some of the other ones, like a backup gun, I, I, I probably wouldn't have an issue carrying an old historic backup gun like that. No, obviously there is the issue of like, Guns like this are literally 100 years old. Yeah. Um, you would not drive a 100-year-old car without putting substantial inspection work into it. And <laughs> if, you plan to, you know, if you plan to defend your life or bet your life on a pistol, make sure, you, you know, make sure it works. Make sure it's in good condition. Make sure it's going to hold up to its end of the job. See a gunsmith, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. Um, but if you got one that works, like to me... 
I, I don't think firearms technology has evolved much at all since about the 50s, and it hasn't evolved that much since the 1910s, um, especially when it comes to semi-auto pistols. 10s, 20s, like the only thing we've really gotten since then is polymer, polymer. You know, some newer materials. But if you look at how the guns work mechanically, basically the same. Um, you want to talk about magazine issues? Well, you're a lot less likely to have them with single stack magazines than you are with double stack magazines. So or metal magazines. Guns like this, yeah, guns like this avoid a lot of those issues. Are you familiar with a guy named William Fairburn? Wrote a book called Shoot to Live? No, I'm not familiar with that. Um, he and his buddy by the name of Sykes, first name I can't remember, um, did basically all the hand-to-hand combat training for OSS and SOE during World War II. Here's the Sykes-Fairburn combat knife. Yeah. Still out of dagger. Yep. Uh, Fairburn was uh, heavily involved. He was one of the commissioners of the Shanghai Police Department um, before World War II. And they, the Shanghai Police Department issued 1911s and Colt 1903s. Um, and basically the 1911s were for European officers and the 1903s were for the, the Chinese officers. And this is like, this is what he chose as a fighting pistol as one of those guys at that time who was heavily involved, deeply involved in modern fighting technique. Um, you know, how do we, how do we shoot? How, how do we design a practical system for gun fighting, mm-hmm. um, as well as hand to hand combat? So to my mind, if if this was good enough for the streets of Shanghai in 1920, it's probably good enough for most places today. And it's, and it's uh, the weight of it too. You could use it as a blunt force object if you needed to. Yeah, you could. Yeah. <laughs> the hands-on aspect of it. And it's out of ammo or it malfunction, which may or may not, but yeah, smack them with it. So I'm curious, you had mentioned that in the early 1900s, there was kind of a revolution for armed citizenry, you know, for people to con- carry concealed. Uh, was there anything going on at that time that may have facilitated that? Like if you look in the late 90s, moving into like Hurricane Katrina, like right after Katrina, we saw that's when concealed carry permits started to take off. Yep. And, mm-hmm. you know, we now have all these states that are constitutional carry. And many people say that started with Katrina. That was one of the big catalysts for that. Was there anything historically going on in the early 1900s that might have been a catalyst for the popularity of, of uh, deep concealed semi-automatics? To be honest, I don't know. Um, I should clarify what, what I know revolutionized was technology. Mm-hmm. Whether there was a big uptick in people choosing to use it, I don't know so much. Um, was it an increase in people carrying or was it just a migration from revolvers to semi-autos? Um, that I don't know. Um, I'd be very interested to find out, but it's not something I've had the the opportunity or the reason to look into before. Well, perhaps it was the manufacturers now have this new technology and then they were promoting it for that use just to have another person to sell it to. They definitely were. Um, in fact, not to go back to Savage again, but if you look at Savage's marketing materials from when these pistols were being sold, one of the big audiences they were trying to sell to was women. Um, it was like you're at home without your man around and someone breaks in, you need a gun that is easy and accurate to shoot quickly. Um, and they've got some, some by today's standards, pretty entertaining uh, marketing literature around that idea. But you know, you're, you're at home, you're unarmed, you're in danger, you should have a pistol.
same, same, same marketing. Maybe they don't say well, your man is not there, but uh, you're savages. In 1920, they weren't selling the handgun safe, so it was just like sitting on the bedside table. Right. <laughs> yeah. right. Or under a mattress or in a garter belt or something. Yeah. Yeah, we, we recommend against Frito Bandito carry. Like, you know, the trigger guard has to be covered. <laughs> Who was it? They hired one of the, well, then the famous Old West gunfighters. Bat Masterson. That's the one. Yeah, Bat yep. Masterson. Mm -hmm. He was like the spokesman for Savage. The ad Bat Masterson had talked about basically pointing the gun, you know, which is pretty much like what we call kinesthetic alignment, you know, being your primary sighting system and using your sights when you need them and right. making sure that the gun points well and uh, naturally. There you go. Yep. <laughs> and, and another funny thing, too, is they actually use Buffalo Bill. The new Savage Automatic, and it's got a picture of Buffalo Bill, so it looks like they use Buffalo Bill in some of their advertising, too. That's cool. Well, that's yeah. like the Masad Ayub of the day and the, and the yeah, that's true. of the day and the, you know, Dave Spaulding of the day, whoever, yeah. Gunfighting is not a new thing. There were people, we may not agree with, you know, their conclusions today, but there were a lot of people who were out there doing their best to, like, as close as you can do scientifically, uh, figuring out the best tactics for gunfighting. Um, and there were guys like Fairburn who were doing it in some of the most dangerous places in the world, like municipal Shanghai in 1920, mm -hmm. uh, to great effect. Hey, gang, this is Masad Ayub from Masad Ayub Group. You're on Meet the Pressers with Clinton Matt. Meet the Pressers. So what do you have behind you on the wall there? Oh, um, well, let's see. I acquired this guy recently, which was pretty cool. Um, this is a Royal Ulster Constabulary Mark I Enfield carbine. So uh, it's a Lee Enfield, but it only has a six-round magazine in it, and it has no stripper clip guide. Um, this was before they started doing stripper clips. Um, you would you would just reload the cartridges through the top of the gun. Uh, so. Uh, this one, this is a gun that was originally made in 1899. It was reconfigured, especially out here at the muzzle end, uh, for the Royal Irish Constabulary. They, they recut the forend to accept a bayonet. That's why it's got this weird thing on the muzzle. Um, so that's cool. I think infield carbines are always sexy. <laughs> and then this guy's super weird and cool and French, which makes it appeal all the more to me. Uh, this is a, a Dota Tau carbine. So, um, Dota Tau, there we go. Uh, Dota Tau designed this, like, it's kind of like the French bolt-action version of the Pedersen rifle, or of the Johnson rifle. The, the Johnson was a pretty good rifle. The problem was, by the time it was being tested by the U.S. military, they'd already effectively adopted the M1, the Garrett. And so, had... Uh, had the Johnson been around earlier, it could have really competed. Well, the Dota Tau is, in many ways, a better rifle than the carbine that the French did adopt just a few years earlier, the Berthier. Um, so it ended up kind of going nowhere. It got trialed a little bit in Indochina, uh, sold commercially a little bit. But by the time it was ready, they'd all the French had already adopted the Berthier. Um, so these are really quite scarce today, and I'm really happy to have this one. In all your shows... Is, is there a, a favorite uh, topic or favorite gun that you, you talked about? Is there one that just was something you never thought you'd get your hands on and you finally did? I've gone through a fair number, one at a time, that I thought I'd never get my hands on. 
Um, I, I bet you one have. Of the, one of the early ones was the Pancourt Jackhammer. Um, it was an early drum-fed select fire shotgun um, that was a, a guy design, thought it'd be cool for the military, and it got tested a little bit and then rejected. Um, so the really funky thing about this is it functions like a Webley Fosbury, um, where it's got a, a 10 round, pretty sure it was 10, a 10 round drum that you can take out and you load up and it's actually got cylinder indexing, uh, grooves on the outside. So you've got a peg that indexes that cylinder mm -hmm. on the outside of the cylinder, like a Webley Fosbury. Um, but as an extra feature, because he intended this for military use, the, the idea was you'd carry spare drums on you. And he had a little extra device that you could put a drum magazine into that turned it into a landmine. Uh, so oh, that yeah. when you stepped on it, it would fire 12 gauge rounds up out of the drum. Wow. <laughs> that's that's multi-purpose, man. That's cool as hell. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the gun looks, it's a bullpup layout. It looks fantastically sci-fi uh, and there's only one so the guy built three uh, the other two were long gone um, there's <laughs> one that survives and I had uh, years ago uh, someone bought it and they sent it to a gunsmith to be worked on and the gunsmith emailed me and said hey we like what you do we've got this thing like we're not sending it to you it's a hundred thousand dollar machine gun one of a kind but if you want to come here and do some filming on it you're welcome to and I was able to do that. Do you have any big projects or anything coming up that uh, you'd like to let any, any of our fans know about? Well, the really cool thing actually I've got coming is uh, with a, a co-host and collaborator and friend of mine named Carl Casarda, we run a second YouTube channel called InRange TV. And we've been doing some developing, like a couple of years ago actually, we, we put together a project kind of on a whim um, of what would Stoner do? And the idea was- <laughs> What would Stoner do? The AR-15, when it was designed, was it was really a fairly revolutionary isn't quite the right term, but it was an, an out there sort of gun. Um, and it was predicated on being a very light rifle. If you compare you know, the, the original AR-10 to all of the other 7.62 caliber battle rifles that were being tested at the time, the AR-10 was far lighter than all the rest of them. Um, the original AR-10s were six to seven pounds compared to a G3 or a FAL. Uh, and, and it used a lot of remarkably unusual modern materials for the firearms industry, which at the time meant things like fiberglass and aluminum, which didn't, like, you didn't use aluminum in a gun. That's as, that's as nonsensical as using polymer in a gun. <laughs> so we looked at this and we thought, well, if Stoner was going to design this rifle or build this rifle with the same set of principles today, using things that we have available today, how would the gun be different? And this was largely a response to, there's a lot of people out there, like, especially at the time, there were a ton of people buying M4 profile barrels, ARs. Well, okay, 0% of you have, have grenade launchers on them. What's the point in having this extra heavy profile barrel that is originally designed so that you can clamp a grenade launcher to it? Like, you're adding weight to the gun. Is it really, are you benefiting from it? And uh, the, the core element, the core um, component that we started with for like, how would we do this rifle to utilize today's materials and get the same end, end result that Stoner did was actually a polymer lower receiver. Not, not just a, a lower made out of polymer, but one designed from the ground up for polymer, which was specifically the one originally designed by Cavalry Arms, um, Cav Arms. 
And what they did was they integrated the pistol grip and the butt stock and the buffer tube and lower receiver all into a single piece, which meant that unlike all the other polymer lowers out there, it didn't snap off at the buffer uh, tower because it was actually reinforced. And it is in fact a more durable lower than an aluminum lower because you can do something like, and in fact, this happened to my buddy at a match once he had his rifle leaned up against someone's car and they didn't notice and they left the match and the rifle fell over and they drove over it. Um, And it bends and it comes back. Um, In fact, what had happened at the time was he and a friend both had rifles leaning on this. It was a Jeep actually. Uh, And one was an aluminum one, one was a polymer one and the aluminum rifle was non-functional afterwards. Uh, the, The lower actually bent. And the polymer one didn't bend or rather it bent and then sprang back and was still usable um, after being run over by a car. I don't say this because like I want to design a rifle specifically in case it gets run it over, but rather just like we, you know, you see a lot of people denigrating the idea of using a polymer lower receiver for an AR. And in some cases that makes sense. Like you can't just take an aluminum component and make it out of polymer, but it's also very much like the argument of that's, I don't think there aren't a whole lot of people that still make it like it's nonsense to have a polymer framed pistol. Why would you do that? It's like a Mattel toy. Well, no, actually polymer has a lot of great benefits. So anyway, I'm, I'm kind of meandering here. Um, we took we a, do that on this show. That's we something do. we do. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. We took a polymer lower receiver. We teamed it up with a pencil weight barrel um, using modern heat treat uh, technologies. Like the problem with pencil barrels back in the sixties was they weren't, Uh, they weren't properly stress relieved. And so when the barrel got hot, it would, stresses would come out and it would start to walk rounds and you couldn't predict where. So it's not just that the group got bigger, but the group would move and move substantially, like four or five, six minute of angle. And it was different on every barrel. Um, With today's heat treating technology, we can properly stress relieve barrels. So when they get hot, the group gets a little bigger, but it doesn't actually move. Uh, Which like, that's why guns like the M16A2 went to a heavier barrel is because they were trying to get rid of that moving zero. Well, we don't need a heavy barrel to do that anymore. Um, we have a carbon fiber handguard that we put on the gun. Um, we have the, what we ended up with was a, a rifle that is superior, superiorly accurate, fantastically accurate, uh, <laughs> with less than six pounds with, with an optic and the sling, um, ambidextrous, we threw on ambidextrous controls. I'm a left-hander myself. Um, and even if you're not, there are, like I think having ambidextrous controls on a rifle both ways is, is a benefit. Um, anyway, we put this together and we're really quite pleased with how it turned out. Uh, the polymer lowers that we were using turned out hadn't actually been made since 2013. And in the wake of all of our video content about this, they all sold out and are gone. Um, and so what's very cool is that we got, we found some investors who are interested in actually tooling up to build an improved and updated version of that lower receiver. Um, KE Arms is going to be putting together what we're calling the What Would Stoner Do 2020 rifle with a couple more improvements over our original version of it. Um, and then Brownells is going to be selling them. And we're actually awesome. introducing those things at SHOT Show this year. Follow, subscribe, click the bell, like, share. Meet the pressers. That looks nice. All right. It does so, look nice. Um, this is our original 2017 version, and we are making a few updates to this, a few improvements, and that's what we'll be showing at shot. 
Um, I weighed it too before I walked in here. Five pounds, six ounces with the optic and the magnifier. And the That's awesome. So there are a couple other things that we put into it since you expressed foolishly an interest. <laughs> um, we left off iron sights because we're making a statement on this that modern optics are reliable enough that they're not going to fail on you. Um, or that your irons are just as likely to fail as your optics. Um, and there are actually, we think, valid reasons to avoid to leave the optics off. So what we got on here is a red dot, which we consider to be the most practical single purpose overall sighting system for a carbine like this. And then we have on a QD mount, a magnifier, a three power magnifier that is, my wife's got this one set up. So there we go. Now the magnifier flips out of the way when you don't need it. And if you really don't need it, you just take it off. And then you have, I don't know, five ounces less weight on the gun. If you have a rear iron sight here, you can't put that magnifier on because there's not space for it. Uh, you could also drop on a PBS 14 here. Uh, if you want to do something at night, your optic, your red dot's already zeroed, drop on a PBS 14, now the rifle is night able. Again, you couldn't do that if you had iron sights taking up rail space there. Um, we also left off the forward assist for basically the same reason. Um, if you have a problem for which you need the forward assist, you need to fix the problem, not jam rounds into the chamber. Um, Stoner himself was not a fan of the forward assist. Um, there's actually some firsthand writing of his about, like the Air Force was fine with the rifle like this. The Army wanted a forward assist. Um, Damn Army. And, and he added it to suit them. We have a KE Arms trigger in there that you can engage the safety whether the rifle is cocked or not cocked. So the AR is kind of a weird beast in that a standard AR, you can't engage safety if you've dry fired it. Which everyone will say, well, that's no big deal. You just like, you learn that and you train around it. But wouldn't it be better if you didn't have to? Like you can always engage the safety on this trigger. And frankly, it's, it's a fantastic match trigger. Um, ambidextrous charging handle. Um, let's see. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, this is my wife's and she's right-handed. We just have the, the right-handed controls on it. Yeah. I, frankly, I love the thing. It, it started off as kind of an intellectual exercise and it turned into <laughs> quite legitimately, if I have to run out of the house with one gun, it's that. Well, if anyone wants to find all of the stuff that I do, you can find it either directly at my own website, which is ForgottenWeapons.com. Uh, you can also find me on YouTube at Forgotten Weapons. Uh, and I am on a couple of other uh, video platforms now. You can find me on Full 30. You can find me on Floatplane as well. And on Amazon Prime, which is where this all started here. I, I forgot that. <laughs> Amazon Prime. <laughs> well, it was a real pleasure to have you on the show. We'll see you at SHOT Show. Yeah, we'll see yeah, you there. Sounds good. Cool. Right, take care, man. Thanks again. Take care. Stay right. safe. Bye. Meet the Pressers. So what have you been up to, Clint? How was 2019? 2019 was a banner year. Got a lot of stuff done. Uh, every year on at the end of the year, right after New Year's, I kind of uh, go through and I compile all my data from all the classes I did. And I publish them on and put them on my Facebook group, the Trigger Pressers Union Facebook group. And uh, that group is for all the instructors and students that I have trained with or trained under or who that I trained 
-hmm. and we share information there and, and try to support one another. And I, I, I uh, encourage all of my instructors to publish their numbers on there so that we can kind of encourage one another to continue to do the work that we do and to maybe outdo ourselves in the next year. So in 2019, uh, I did 98 days in the classroom or on the range. Uh, and those are full, uh, because here we don't have any uh, required training, you know, I'm not doing any like four hour class or anything like these are full standardized one, you know, day long classes, you know, through the USCCA or NRA or ICE training. I only have a couple couple classes that I teach that are under my own brand. I teach a lot of standardized courses. Uh, Project Appleseed is, is another one. And I've trained in a bunch of states this year or in, in 2019. Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Indiana, Virginia, New Jersey, Tennessee, Wisconsin, Massachusetts, North Carolina. That's nine states. Last year I did eight. This year I did nine. And in 2020 so far, I'm booked in seven states, which is pretty cool. And I haven't awesome. even started to fill up my calendar into uh, – I'm, I'm into May-ish now is, is where I have it. I've got some other classes booked further out than that too. I did 17 days of travel. Mm. That's crazy. 17 yeah. travel days. Uh, two articles on Personal Defense Network, one on USCCA on online, one article for Gun Owners of America online. Uh, Meet the Pressers. We did 30 episodes last 30 year. episodes. Over and 40 guests. Think, yeah. Yeah. And you think about that. We spend maybe one day every couple weeks to record yep. and I spend one full day each week posting that. So right there's 30 days of posting meet the pressers. Uh, a lot of national train of teach a day. We did the second annual last year. I, I helped with uh, Grant Gallagher. We, we administrated that. I've taken more responsibility on the firearms owners against crime here locally. I've been doing more things there. Uh, I was president of Allegheny County Sportsman's League last year. And of course, we were doing lots of different things with CWD as well as the litigation with the city of Pittsburgh, which is still ongoing. Uh, and of course, I had the studio here. So it was a pretty busy year last year. Uh, awesome. 2020 is is turning out to look pretty, pretty uh, awesome. We've got classes booked already in Pennsylvania, Virginia, Tennessee, Florida, Maryland, New York. I'm coming up there to do some classes up there with you. And then... Yep. I'll be at the uh, USCCA Expo in Missouri. I expect that I'll be back in Wisconsin at some point. You know, USCCA generally calls me in to, to help out with something there uh, from time to time. Uh, we've got the Harrisburg rally that's coming up in June 8th. That's going to be on the steps outside of the Capitol. We're going to try and get all Pennsylvanians down there to show their support. And then the D.C. rally. There's going to be another D.C. rally uh, on October 24th. Yep. And I'll definitely be there. I know you'll be there too, Matt. Yep. We'll be there together to represent uh, our fellow law-abiding citizens. Definitely. Uh, season two of Meet the Pressers is just turning out to be wonderful. We've got lots of great guests. Uh, we're yep. doing the third annual National Train of Teacher Day on June 2nd, 2020. That's June 20, 2020. Uh, <laughs> the Pittsburgh litigation is ongoing. Uh, Firearms Owners Against Crime won, thanks to uh, the, the work of Kim Stolfer. And, of course, Josh Prince was uh, – the mastermind behind the legal side of that. Uh, and the Allegheny County Sportsman's League case was considered moot because of the win with Firearms Owners Against Crime. Uh, Allegheny County Sportsman's League is appealing the case, and the city of Pittsburgh is appealing the Firearms Owners Against Crime case. So all of those are moving forward. So we're still raising money for that. Uh, we've spent 
tens of tens of thousands of dollars in those cases. And Firearms Owners Against Crime actually is fighting cases all across the Commonwealth. Uh, the city of Harrisburg is appealing the case that Firearms Owners Against Crime won there. Uh, we're involved with some litigation in the city of Philadelphia. And there's different municipalities all across the Commonwealth who are violating state preemption laws and Firearms Owners Against Crime is taking them to task. That might be just having uh, Josh Prince write them a letter to explain to them what's going on. And some of the cases were or in some of the cities were actually uh, starting to you know, file suit. Uh, so there's lots of that going on. Um, I've got classes coming up. Let's see, some big ones that might be of interest. Um, we've got well, so lots of uh, DSF classes that are going to be here in Pennsylvania locally. Uh, and you can see all these classes on my website on triggerpressersunion.com. Uh, some instructor development for DSF they're going to be doing in Maryland, in New York, in Florida, and uh, lots and lots of stuff. So if you want to check out my schedule, go on to triggerpressersunion.com. Uh, some goals for myself, I would love to be able to, and I'm trying to make this happen, I, I would really like to take the Chris Serino uh, Diagnostic Coach class. Definitely. I forget, I don't think that's the actual name that he uses, but, but the Shot Diagnostic class that he talked about when he was on the episode. That's, that's one of my goals to take that. I think if, if time works out and the schedule works out, I think it's time for me to go and, and take the uh, ICE Intuitive Defensive Shooting Instructor course. I'm, I'm ready to do that. Cool. Uh, also, I want to do some training with Todd Fossey. I'm really excited yeah. about getting into his methodology and seeing, seeing that firsthand. I think that might be some things that I would like to ultimately offer my clients, give them that next layer of, of confidence with uh, their ability to defend themselves without a firearm, you know, in those cases where they don't have it or, or what have you. So those are some goals that I have moving forward. Lots of classes coming up. You know, we've got lots of things coming up with Meet the Pressers. It's uh, 2020 looks like it's going to be a, a great year. But I will say this, with all of that going on, we as law-abiding gun owners need to be vigilant and active mm -hmm. when it comes to defending our Second Amendment. And we need to pay attention to what's going on with the elections. We need to back good candidates and make sure that you do the census. There's a census this year, and if we fail to do the census, we won't get the right information and the right districting. Yep. So encourage all your friends and family to make sure they fill out those censuses That's as right. they come around. So uh, how about your 2019 and what you have coming up for 2020? Oh, goodness. So beginning of 2019, we officially uh, kicked off the gun store. So we, we got our FFL in the end of uh, uh, 2018, beginning of 2019, really kicked it off pretty heavily. Um, type 7 FFLs, so we started doing a little bit of manufacturing, a little bit of gunsmithing. So we started doing stippling as well as uh, making holsters. So we make Kydex holsters and stippling. I've got one of my, uh, one of my uh, instructors and employees, former student, turned into an uh, employee, etc. Uh, UTM, we, I did the UTM, came down to Pennsylvania, which is actually how we ended up uh, doing our show here. We ended up talking about mm -hmm. the, the former show and morphed it into Meet the Pressers, which is awesome. So we got the UTM instruction, which I'm hoping to do some UTM courses coming up, um, Ultimate Training Munitions courses coming up in 2020 and, and offer them to the general public. Um, this past year, when because of the show, went down and, and met with uh, Eric, Iraqi Eric Veteran eighty eight eighty eight down in Georgia. Did some hunting and a bunch of stuff with him. So that was that was awesome. It was to help promote the show, which is is definitely been good. And yeah, and I have to say about that too. You know, a, a shout out to Eric. 
of our numbers doubled within a couple days when that first episode that you did, the gun gripes you did, aired with him. So I think, you know, we both certainly have a great deal of gratitude for his assistance in helping us to grow this show. And going forward, too, we've got more two two episodes. I recorded three with Eric, gun gripes. Uh, we got two more that are going to air. And then we also have more that we're doing at SHOT Show, which we're going to be meeting up at in about a week and a half uh, with Eric. and, And they'll be on our show as well. So, yeah, we'll be doing an episode with Charlie too. Yep. Yeah. Right. Riding shotgun with Charlie. So and maybe uh, some other things too. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah, yeah, a lot. A lot of uh, great ideas on the uh, on the forefront. So, so you've, you've uh, had a couple articles published in nineteen. I, I did. Um, but so I don't forget with this. Uh, I'm New York State's first Taser civilian instructor. So I, I got certified to do that. First one in New York State. And Is 19. your number zero 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 one for New York? Yeah. Sure. <laughs> i'm bad about that like keeping up with what the number is there's too much stuff up here as it is like yeah. stuff like what's my number i don't know let me look at my card yeah it was beaten to my head from the military remember your social so um yeah so the nationally published articles i did um four articles my first article nationally published that i actually um from another organization other than my own because I've been writing articles myself on my own website, but finally took that plunge. Um, and Amolam published my George Zimmerman article in July. Mm-hmm. That was the first one, which was really awesome. And I have to give Andrew Bronca a little um, uh, bump here because he's the one that actually told George that I'm a nice guy. Um, I don't know where he got that from, but <laughs> yeah, Andrew law of self-defense is one yep. of our sponsors too. Exactly. So definitely. So, uh, so Andrew had, had told them that when I reached out to George. So, so I honestly believe and and uh, that because of of Andrew kind of uh, giving me the 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 nod to George, that's why I was able to get that interview. Being the fifth person to ever interview him, and we've had George on the show, which is cool. Um, so that was the George Zimmerman article, and then because of that, or I should say, in conjunction with that, I ended up doing two articles uh, for Guns.com, and then another article for my first article for PDN Personal Defense yeah. Network, which is which is awesome. My ESS article. Welcome to the uh, contributor pool. Thank you. And I'm joining the contributor pool as well for USCCA. I've got an article that they're, uh, I have quite a few articles with them that I'm, that they're looking at, but uh, right now I've got one, um, a smoking gun, medical marijuana. Is it a recipe for infringement? That's something that they're, uh, they're going to be publishing into the new year, which is pretty awesome. So my travel, we had uh, 220 courses booked in 2019. Uh, we had over 2,000, a little over 2,000 students total that I trained um, through the year. Um, uh, biggest class that I taught, I had 82 students in the class. And as it is now, we've got, I've got one booked for the day I leave for SHOT Show. I'm doing it at 8 a.m. And right now we've got, I think, 50 some odd students booked and that just dropped Monday. So, uh, that mm. the, the max seat for that's 150. So we'll have, a, if it maxes out, which I'm pretty sure it's going to based on the marketing, um, the host is, is doing for me. Uh, it's going to be uh, about 150 students. That'll be the biggest course that I've ever taught. Not the biggest student attendance because I've mm. done commencement speeches at colleges and stuff in the past, but well, a lot of the classes you're doing in that one in particular is more like seminar or, yeah. or presentation style, right? Yeah. yeah this one's a, a four hour handgun safety course for people to get their pistol license in New York state. And that, that's the one I do the most. I do it once a week and it ranges from four students to um, on average 10 to 20 students is usually what that, that class uh, garnishes. Um, but the 82 was a New York uh, pistol course at a local gun club that reached out to me and said, Hey, we want to offer this to our member base. And you know, they've got, 
tons of members. So uh, the first one we did was 82. And then I did a follow-up Article 35 Use of Force course, which is a New York State law course. Um, and that had 62 students. So those are the two biggest courses uh, at that location, for sure. Over 10 trips, uh, a lot of them are pro staff for laser ammo, um, uh, uh, laser, so shooter technology group. I did, uh, you mentioned your state, so I guess I'm going to have to go through my list here. And so it was over 10 trips was Connecticut for CAM4, SHOT Show. No, Nevada. Good, good, good. good. Uh, yep, Las Vegas, Nevada. Uh, Pennsylvania for UTM. Uh, Ailita in St. Louis, Missouri for, uh, for Laser Ammo. Uh, USCC Expo in PA, um, do, 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 where I taught the Saber Red Pepper Spray course. Shooters Technology Group for the NRA Annual Meeting in Indianapolis. Uh, USCCA had me go to the American Police Hall of Fame Museum in Titusville, Florida to teach a CCH, CCHDF instructor course. I also went to Maine for the USCCA to do a DSF Level 1 instructor course. Um, and New Jersey, I went to New Jersey to get recertified in uh, pepper spray with Safari Land, and then my trip to Georgia to hang out with uh, Eric to promote our show. Eric, Iraq veteran, eighty-eight, eighty-eight, and then again back to Florida to teach my three steps behind course at the American Police Hall of Fame Museum. All right, well that's nine. We're tied. Okay. Personal, personal stuff. So as far as my personal, and, and this is something that it's so crucial, and I, I try to tell my students that. You know, I don't care if you, I take training and, and you do too, Clint. Yeah. We have to, everything we do is a perishable skill. Everything we do is a perishable skill. I'm looking right into the camera now. I'm, I'm usually looking at Clint, but everything we do is a perishable skill. And we have to, to continuously do stuff. Think about when you rode a bike for the first time. You sucked. And then after practice, you got really good. And then you had a long lag in that, in that process of riding a bike. It, called being an adult and then eventually you have kids grandkids nieces nephews or you just want to get in shape and you start riding a bike again and what do you get a hospital bill <laughs> because you haven't ridden a bike in a while so everything we do is a perishable skill so that being said I try to do as much training as I can last year I did 100 hours of personal training um, and that was everything from law enforcement recertification to the the level two uh, train the trainer UTM uh, course that we did there. Uh, Taser became the Taser instructor, so I had to do that, that training for that. I got recertified as uh, ASP, who is the sponsor of the show. Uh, ASP, I went out to Buffalo and got recertified as a uh, ASP baton handcuffing and flashlight instructor. I did the uh, Safari Land, and then I'll even do some uh, uh, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and, and DT locally at some of the local dojos. I'll, I'll try to get in and do some of that stuff because, like you had alluded to. The knife stuff and the DT stuff, even though I'm a DT instructor, I'm not doing it as frequently as I'm doing firearm stuff. So mm -hmm. um, that, that's so important because the, those encounters, when you're within feet of somebody, I mean, the, the crap hits the fan. Yeah, if you don't know how to control, use your hands, open hand tactics, uh, pressure points, controlling the head, if you don't know how to do that or you're not, um, you're not brushed up on it because you haven't uh, done it in a long time, then the bad guy might have the one up on you. So. Yeah, that's that's a good point about the continuing education for yourself. I didn't keep track of my, <clears throat> excuse me, my hours that I went and practiced on my own, but I did get spend about ten days taking classes under other instructors last year. When I hosted Rob, it was pretty awesome. He normally will kind of have me assist him, 
And uh, this year I said, dude, I just need to shoot, man. I, I haven't been getting enough trigger time. And yeah. he ran me through the ringer and like so much to like, I had blisters and stuff all over my hands, <laughs> but it was good. So what, what classes are you looking to take this year as a well, student? Def- definitely the Sereno. Definitely want to do uh, Chris Sereno's instructor uh, course there. Uh, some of the other ones too on the law side of it, because I'm, I'm thinking it, that that's so much more, I don't want to say so much more important, but that mindset of you'll win a thousand percent of the fight you're not in. So if you're, if you have the mindset of knowing the law and, and knowing the, the best way to stat it, like uh, verbal judo, right. Being able to talk your way out of something, um, you know, in high school, there's, I, I was a smart ass. I mean, I don't know if you can tell or not, but in high school, I was a smart ass. And if a big guy comes up to me and some of the big guys I'm friends with now, um, could probably attest to this. I should, I should probably get them to give me a little, uh, little, a bump on that and tell tell them how crazy I acted. Right. So they come up to me cause I'm going to be in a smart ass and they want to beat my butt into the ground. And I just act crazy. They're like, come on, you want to fight? Let's do it. And I'll start punching myself and they'll be like, dude, you're crazy. And then they walk <laughs> away and I'm like, Shoo. you so, watch lethal weapon too much. That's probably like, what he's going to kick my ass. Right. Um, so that on the mental side, the, the, the law side of it and such Masada, you want to do his, uh, mag 20 course. That would be I, a think, good one. I think it is. Uh, and then Andrew Bronco's instructor. Oh, dude, I want to do that one too. Course. I'll have to add that one to the list. Yep. So those are, those are the two that I'm, uh, I'm aspiring to do. And obviously having coffee with Tom Givens down in Florida, um, uh, you know, it was neat to, to talk to him. So I'm, I'm contemplating looking for a course somewhere in uh, 2020 and getting certified as an instructor under uh, Tom Givens' um, Range Master brand. Cool. Yeah, I, I like to take the student level class first so I can just get a taste on whether or not I buy into the methodology. Obviously, there's, especially with some of these guys, like there's definitely going to be some stuff that I learn that I'm going to be able to retain and keep. And, and just taking their class as a student is going to make me a better instructor. Yeah, yeah, I've had I had a student say one time, I'm going to a Sig Sauer, and, and and I'd like to do some Sig Sauer stuff at some point too. But it's 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 about it's all about time, right? Yeah. Um, so uh, he said, Well, I'm going to Sig Sauer to take a course. I'm like, Well, when you go on, you know, I, I might go with you. And he goes, Well, why would you want to go? You could teach the course. And I'm like, Yeah, but I could if I learn one thing from that course, even if it's not something as a student or a way for me to to um, better myself as a as an individual gunslinger, um, then can I learn something from the instructor as an instructor that I can use as an instructor? So there's, there's two layers there for me as an instructor. Um, and I never discount that. I, I always look at the possibility of learning something from that course, no matter how minuscule it is. If I walk away with one thing I've learned, then I, I consider it a, you know, a value added. So uh, where can people see your schedule and sign up for one of your classes? Oh yeah, that's right. You listed your, your stuff. So I, right now we've got everything up on the website psned.com or public safety and education.com. Um, right now I've got a hundred and da, 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 da. I've got courses out to the end of November, but the major majority of them are out till June. So I've only got a few out past June that are on the calendar. Um, but I've got 132 courses listed right now on the website out till the end of November. But like I said, most of them are out till June. Um, and I got about another hundred or so. So we'll be over, over 200 courses again, listed. Um, within the next few months, I would say I should have my full schedule out, but psned.com, public safety education.com. They're all listed on the actual page. It takes me a little bit longer to get them up on Facebook events page on USCCA's portal and also on uh, Google calendar. But um, once they're on the page, people can start signing up for them. Well, so awesome. Nice. Here's the 2020 brother. We've got a lot of sponsors that make this show possible. Check them out and give them your business. This episode of Meet the Pressers is made possible with the generous support of Car Firearms Group, the Law of Self-Defense, Nikon Sport Optics, 
Mantis X, Shooter Technology Group, Henry Repeating Arms, Saber Red, Asp, The Safer Faster Defense Responder 2.0, Lee Armory, Next Level Training, and our Patreon members. Thank you. Thanks for watching the show. Make sure to subscribe, click the little bell, like, comment, follow, and share. And you can also support us on Patreon, host us to teach a course at your location, or come to our location and take a course. Until next time, adieu. Thank you for watching Meet the Pressers. 